This is Mark Fletcher, and welcome to my world. Welcome to Southern Tales, tall and otherwise. Oblivious. If you don't notice or aren't aware, it means that the adjective oblivious applies to you. When we think of the adjective oblivious, it is usually in situations that involve being totally unaware of what's staring us right in the face. It can also mean being forgetful and absent-minded. I have a daughter that I also like to say is oblivious. But now, as I look back on my life, she got it honestly. And like I say, it's just a Southern thing. Sit back and enjoy. Southern Tales, Season 2, Episode 7, Jason Isbell and Oblivious Times. When you have the opportunity to look back on your life, you sometimes see a bigger picture and become more aware of some personal traits and trends that you might not have previously attributed to yourself. I'm not really talking about mistakes or regrets, just circumstances that in retrospect become funny. That's where we're off to tonight. And while there might be some disputes about the actual facts, this is the way I remember it. And in my opinion, every goddamn word is true. Again, welcome to the Southern Tales podcast. Tonight, we're going to be in the 80s and 90s and even some 2000s. We're going to save some of the some of the 70s stories for next time, as we do have a theme tonight. And I hope it's not your first episode, but if it is, go back and listen to the previous episodes because they kind of build on one another. These are stories about me and my family, my cousins, uncles, closest friends, some friends who were close but maybe aren't anymore. We've all got some of those. And some of these folks are allegedly kin, but it's really not sure how. We may call them uncles or cousins or whatever, but no one really knows. Uh, these are characters that I continue to introduce, and they'll wind their way into and out of these stories. It'll also help you understand the context and sometimes the humor, if you know the characters. And tonight's episode is no different. Now, you already know that 
I've been in and around music most of my life. It's played a big deal in my life. Yeah, I play some instruments, but my main talent has always been as a writer. I start off writing poems and short stories in high school, and then songs and plays and more short stories. I have tons of them. You, you may have heard of the Drive-By Truckers. They're a band from Muscle Shoals, Alabama. Well, in the 80s, I ran in the same circles as those guys. They were called a different name, and, and I knew them a little bit, uh, but we were never actually together. They moved to Memphis in the early 90s, and again, we almost crossed paths. Uh, great guys, and they've always been very good to me and my family. Speaking of family and music, in 1999, my oldest wanted to learn guitar, or maybe I wanted her to learn. Either way, she she had grown up listening to my songs and my music, and I wasn't sure that um, I could teach her, and maybe a real music teacher would be better because she'd respect them better and maybe listen better and you know do the things she's supposed to, supposed to do. Um, you know how kids are. So I went around Memphis. I was interviewing, you know, several local guitar teachers. Uh, I remember we went and saw Mike Strickland, who was like a local legend in his own mind. And, and he was a little too arrogant for my taste, you know. And there were several others who didn't seem conducive to how I wanted her to learn. I eventually went to Singleton Community Center in Bartlett, which was not too far from our house. They had a couple teachers out there. One was an older guy who was interested in teaching her how to play Woody Guthrie stuff. Uh, maybe not. So I interviewed the younger guy. Now, this this guy, he was just a kid. I'm thinking he was 19. He was a Memphis State student, uh, and he was pretty humble and quiet. But as we kind of went through the little interview, I, it occurred to me, you know, I think he's just kind of a show-off. And I wasn't convinced that he was, you know, really a maybe not a great player or teacher um, so I moved on and eventually I just gave her the Mel Bay book that my older brother had given me 20 years earlier she took that book kind of like I did up to her room and she practiced every day for hours for maybe six months when she came out she was on her way to being a very good player a year or so, maybe two years later, I was reading Rolling Stone when they had reviewed this record by a band that I hadn't heard of called the Drive-By Truckers. The record was called Southern Rock Opera. Now, right away I said, that sounds like me because I've been searching for really Southern rock since the Leonard Skinner plane crash that we talked about in an earlier episode. Uh, and then it mentioned these guys that I kind of knew from Alabama. So, wow, um, we got to get this. And it wound up being the Rolling Stone record of the year, but we were already on it. And we would put the CD in the car and, and drive around listening to it. I mean, it was an amazing record. And soon I went to see them at like the Young Avenue Deli in Memphis. I'm thinking there were maybe 20 folks there. And um, guess who had just joined the band? Yep, that guitar teacher. His name was Jason Isbell. Uh, we talked, and I told him that I had fired him as a teacher. <laughs> he thought it was pretty funny. Uh, of course, since then, he's gone on to win Grammys and have great solo records. And, and you know, he's still a down-to-earth guy. But guess who you can't count on for good judgment? 
uh, I would say I was pretty oblivious to his talent, probably. But anyway, worked out for him, and we got we got okay too. I would say it was a pretty typical event for me. You know, I, I was, like I say, I was oblivious that I somehow missed his greatness because it was always there. The next year, he and I sat on the curb smoking a cigarette outside of Proud Larry's in Oxford, Mississippi. They had just played a brand new song of his called John Henry. And I told him that I thought, you know, if you keep writing like that, you're going to be great one day. See, I got one right. The very next year, my daughter sang on stage with a band a couple times, once in Memphis and once in Oxford. It was, the first, it was at the first appearance that Jason gave her the nickname Unsinkable. Thanks, buddy. And, and so I spent much time in and around Nashville. Um, you know, my uh, music lawyer was there, and, you know, there was a lot of stuff happening. One evening, a friend of mine and, and myself went to the Bonefish, which was located in Cool Springs, just south of Nashville. Now, the name Cool Springs has nothing to do with water gushing up in the air. They just want a cool-ass name for all the expensive restaurants and real estate in the area. And it was a pretty nifty area in the early 2000s. So anyway, it was always a crowd there, and we had to wait in the bar. And there at the bar, my friend goes, that's Kenny Chesney. Wow, and there he was, sitting up there eating and drinking at the bar. We saw stars all the time, so it wasn't a big deal. The next day, I told my music attorney about it, and he asked me, I bet, he was, I bet he was with a guy. I said, yeah, I promise you. I never even thought he was saying something to me until this very day. Duh, oblivious. One day at lunch in Nashville, maybe 2003 or so, we went to Ted's Montana Grill. Always loved that place. I mean, it was right on West End, close to Music Row, close to Vanderbilt. Um, and I kid you not. Bison burgers and bison steaks are the very best. End of argument. They say they have less fat than fish, but they have more taste than regular steaks. I'm somewhat addicted. But anyway, I was at lunch with two colleagues, Eric and Steve, and these were both great guys, and we always had fun at lunch. I think somebody else was probably paying. Uh, on this day, we had a really cute waitress, and some guys at the table, you know, they would kind of follow her as she moved around the restaurant. Maybe all of us did. Anyway, one point, she goes up to the bar where the bartender gives the waitresses the drinks that they then serve. Well, this time, as she went up to the bar, she reached out to get the tray, and her elbow hit a stack of styrofoam cups that were stacked right beside her. I guess they were for to-go cups or whatever. Well, the stack of cups fell and hit the rubber mat in front of the bar. You know, this is the mat that's soaked full of beer and other things that dripped off the trays and feet of all the waiters and waitresses that tramped back and forth all day long. We all watched as she just kind of looked around, casually bent over, and picked up the stack of styrofoam cups. Then she just kind of eased them back on the counter, as if nothing had happened. And the guys all turned, and we looked at each other at the table. Eric or Steve blurted out, Did y'all see that? I had, and I was beside myself. I said, oh my God, this is perhaps the worst health code violation that I've ever seen. Just then, both guys looked at me with incredulous looks. I said, didn't, didn't y'all think so? Then they informed me that they were what they were glaring at was not the obvious health code violation, but the fact that when she bent over, it revealed her thong. I never saw the thong. I never had a clue. I saw a serious health code violation. 
nothing more. Oblivious, for sure. And actually, the next event in this story happened at the same location, except it was at night. We'd went in there maybe 8.30 or so uh, for a late dinner. This time it was just me and Eric. We loved going to dinner in Nashville. Someone else was paying, of course. Uh, but in Nashville, it was always cool because you might see somebody that you know. I mean, one Sunday morning a few years earlier, George Jones was behind me in line for breakfast at Mrs. Winters. You remember Mrs. Winters? They had a great sweet roll that just couldn't be beat. But I noticed George behind me, and by the looks of him, while I was there for breakfast, he was there for his midnight snack. I tried to think of what to say to him, you know, uh, and be cool. And anyway, it didn't work out. I turned around and I blurted out something like, I'm a big fan. He sneered and said, fuck off. So at least that confirmed it was him. Um, anyway, back to that night at Tez Montana Grill. Um, it was me and Eric, right? And pretty much from the time we sat down, we were interrupted and, and it was really kind of bad, but there was a group of Eastern European women in the back and they were constantly laughing and giggling really loud and, and talking. Uh, it was, you know, it wasn't cool, right? Um, a bit over the top. And, and judging from their accents, they were Bulgarian or Romanian or something like that. They talked a little bit like my friend Svetlana Krevencheva. Uh but near the end of our meal, it got louder and louder. And they were giggling and everything. And there was a tall, blonde-haired lady who walked past them. And then and she walked past us, and they kept on giggling and everything. I happened to turn and watch the lady. She walked right on through the restaurant and went to the door where a man opened it. And she was last seen getting into a limo outside the door, which I thought was kind of cool. Who knows? Uh, but then we turned around. And the Bulgarian girls were suddenly standing up and they were fawning around a short, well-tanned guy with blonde hair. He looked like a surfer boy. You know, had the little wings, hair cut and all, and all that stuff. Just then I realized who it was. It was Cato Kalin. You remember him, the guy who was almost a witness to the O.J. Simpson killing of Ron Goldman and Nicole Simpson? Yeah, that guy. Now, this was almost 10 years after all that, and I knew that Cato had been on Hollywood Squares and some things like that, but I was pretty sure his star had passed, except maybe in Bulgaria. Anyway, they were all taking pictures and giggling way too loud. It was pretty obvious he was happy to be noticed or whatever. They kept switching places and switching cameras and whatnot, and finally they let poor Cato go. And he walked onto the restaurant unimpeded because I guess no one else really wanted to talk to Cato. And he went out the door, and I saw the same limousine there, and he got in. The door shut, and the girls were still giggling as if something fantastic had happened. They were all, like, out of breath, and it was crazy. And a waiter came over. I said, man, can you believe all that? He said, yeah. Only in Nashville, Tennessee, does Nicole Kidman walk through a restaurant with no one knowing her while Keith Urban gets mobbed. Damn, it wasn't Cato after all. Dumb me, oblivious.
For the liner notes of this episode and all episodes of the Southern Tales podcast, please go to broadneckmusic.com where you'll find out more about the episode. You can also find more about our kick-ass theme music from Audra Brown, one of Memphis's best young songwriters. You can also contact me at stalespodcast at gmail.com. You can ask questions, hey, or you can tell me your stories, and eventually your stories can get on Southern Tales Podcast. Once again, thanks for listening, and please tell a friend about the fun we're having. See you next week on Southern Tales, 20 Minutes and a Smile. Smile.